everyone, and welcome to this conversation presented by White House Custom Color. I'm Jed Toffer. Thanks for listening. You know, my wife Vicki and I have owned and operated our photography studio, V Gallery, for 20 years now. White House has been our lab for the last 16 of those years, and we could not be happier. White House is a family-run business, just like ours. If you haven't already, check them out at whcc.com. And if you want to drop me a line, feel free to email me at jed at whcc.com. Hey everyone, I just had the pleasure of speaking with one of the very first Canon Explorers of Light, David Hume Kennerly. He is amazing. Um, There's a quote from James Earl Jones that says, David Hume Kennerly is like Forrest Gump, except he was really there. (laughs) That is so very true. As, as I was looking through his images, it's it's like, oh, I've seen that one, and I've seen that one, and I've seen that one. And then hearing him talk about some of the background uh, for some of what he's been through and what he's seen, um, it was just a fantastic experience. Uh, I'm calling this the truth teller, because that's exactly what he has done. That's exactly who he is. So enjoy. I've done a lot of these interviews couple hundred of them in the last couple years. And I started looking into you more and more and more and realized that I was a lot more familiar with your work than I expected. Huh. Um, Cause I never know who I'm going to talk to. Right. I don't, these aren't planned out too far in advance. Right. Right. And the more I discovered, the more nervous I became. <laughs> oh dear. No reason for that. <laughs> um, I cannot believe what you have seen and where you have been and what you have done. I can't either or even. <laughs> Save page. Somebody, Save page. No, somebody the other day was uh, uh, asking me about all this stuff because I've been at it since I was a kid really. And uh, I said, it's hard to believe that any one person could have taken all those pictures. And it's harder for me to believe that I was the one who did it, even though I did it. I mean, it, it's when you stretch stuff out over 50 years and um, like this year is the 50th year uh, that I first went to Vietnam 50 years ago. I mean, think about that. Uh, that's a long time ago, and and um, I was tw- I just turned 24, and it was such a big experience for me, and it was so important to do it for me. Um, but I I never get over it. I, I've never taken it for granted. I've never take. I remember when I used to drive into the White House. You know, they'd see me coming, the gates would open. Hey, Dave, how you doing? Like, I'd drive right through the gate Mm -hmm. and park uh, on West Exec, like four spots up from the vice president's car and go into the West Wing with my office. And I, every day I did it was like, you know, somebody's going to find me out here. You know, they're (laughs) going to, I'm going to get arrested. (laughs) <laughs> it's a, it, I, like an imposter syndrome as you're walking yeah, into the White House. <laughs> I mean, and I know a lot of people. I, I, I produced a movie one time with, based on my Vietnam days, and the director kept said he had that. You know, he said he 
you know, one of these days they're going to come and like arrest him for attempting to direct. <laughs> and so, but I, I think um, uh, my attitude has been the same about that. Uh, uh, even though I'm like past 70, I hit 74 in March, I'm, uh, I still have the mind of an 18-year-old, I think, mm. but I still have the same enthusiasm for what I do. And as long as I can do that, I'm uh, fine. I, I don't think I'm that different from when I was when I started. I believe that. I wanted to ask you about Vietnam in particular. Go ahead. <laughs> well, because here's the thing. I what I what I'd like to hear from you as someone with such a unique perspective in my estimation is you're 24 years old, right? You're, you're going over there. Did you have any sense at all at the time, what it was that you were getting into? Uh, that's a really good question. And yes, uh, the simple answer, but when I graduated from high school, uh, from Westland high in, uh, Oregon, in uh, 1965, at that point, the, the, the Vietnam War was just starting to crank up. And, and I had a lot of classmates then who got drafted. And four of, four of them were killed over there. And these are guys that uh, I took pictures of playing football and uh, being the, the, the high school photographer, the paper, the uh, annual, doing all that. There probably wasn't anybody in uh, the school that I hadn't photographed or at least talked to. And, and I was fairly gregarious, so I would get around. And, uh, and then I went on to become a uh, photographer for the Oregon Journal and for the Oregonian. Then I moved to L.A. to work for UPI, uh, which was in uh, late 67. And then I moved to New York in 1970 for UPI and then, uh, or 69 rather, and then 70. And all this time, I've seen the, the, the pictures come out of Vietnam, like mm -hmm. um, Eddie Adams' classic photo of the guy getting shot in the head, the execution yep. uh, in yep. uh, 1968. He won the Pulitzer in 69. Um, and I just had this overriding feeling that I needed to go there uh, for many reasons. One, I was, uh, my chosen field was to be a news uh, photographer. Mm -hmm. And I also felt I had an obligation to uh, my buddies, like to go and see for myself what it was that killed them. I mean, I, right. I you know, I knew what was going on, obviously. And, uh, uh, Ironically, I was I was never really political about the war. I didn't feel I had a a dog in the hunt, like anti-war, pro-war, whatever. As a as a news person, I think all I want to do is see what's going on, like to see for myself, to take the pictures for myself, and that was strong motivation for me. But to answer your question, um, yes, I knew what I was getting into, and and I think. Uh, and I, I look back again, uh, the year I graduated from uh, high school, uh, 
there was this great Life magazine story that came out, Yankee Papa 13 by Larry Burroughs, uh, who was a, one of the great life photographers. And, and that story really affected me because it had a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. It was a, a story of this kind of happy-go-lucky crew chief on a Marine helicopter and followed him through his day. And the first shot, he's you know, smiling and carrying the guns to put in the, the chopper. And then they take these Vietnamese into battle. And then one of their fellow helicopters uh, uh, got shot down and they went to rescue them. And, and they carried this one guy in and the, the cover of the magazine is one of the most incredible pictures ever. And there's a dead uh, uh, comrade of his and, the, and this guy's kind of screaming. But when they got back, uh, to their base, the last photo in the essay was this guy alone in a, in a in a warehouse or something on a bunch of boxes that he's like weeping. And that was one of the strongest things I'd ever seen. You weren't used to seeing pictures like that. Vietnam, it's like a lot of bang, bang or action or, you know, I mean, you see dead people and all. But that the 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 arc of the drama there and the arc of the tragedy really was so evident and that that profoundly affected me but on my way out in vietnam and um it's worth noting the last assignment i covered was uh the alley fraser fight in madison square garden in 19 um uh, march 8th 1971 and i i remember the date very well and i had a ringside seat and the picture i took of Ali getting knocked down in the 15th round was on the front page of the New York Times the next day, which also happened to be my 24th birthday. So when I woke up, I was staying at Dirk Halstead's place in New York City. And there was my picture on the front of the New York Times, credited, of course, to UPI, but it was mine. And um, it was, it was mind boggling, but about Two weeks, no, maybe a month earlier, I can't remember. Um, I was going out to Vietnam to replace Kent Potter, who was uh, uh, moving to Thailand. I think he was going to stay in the area. I never met him, but he and Larry Burroughs, my hero, whom I've never met, and uh, uh, two other photographers, Henry Hewitt of uh, AP, were shot down over Laos at an operation called Lamsad 719. And that was the, I think the first moment I realized that I might not make it back from there. Oh. I really hadn't thought about the uh, the mortality part right. of it. I mean, I knew, you know, like, of course, not only soldiers, all these people, my friends had been killed. Yeah. But because I was going to replace this one photographer, that also that really personalized it, it scared the shit out of me. I mean, I was. Mm -hmm. I started thinking about that, and I talked to a couple of my buddies who had been out there, Bill Sneed and, and Dirk also, but uh, Dirk was a, a, a mentor to me, really. Um, and he was one of the first photographers, uh, Eddie Adams, uh, also the two of them uh, covered the Marines coming to shore at Da Nang in 1965. And, um, and I just told him about my misgivings but I also said, you know, uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to go. I, I would never forgive myself if I didn't go. Right. Um, right. 
but I was scared. You know, I was scared. I, I at that point I hadn't really honestly thought about it that much, and I've been kind of going over a lot of this stuff lately. I'm writing a, a book, uh, fifty stories from my life, and uh, which I'm in the process of, and that's one of the stories. And like the long way around of answering your question, which is a, the perfect question because. That was uh, uh, like, why do any of us do what we do? And why did anybody go to Vietnam when they didn't have to, which was a question right. I would be asked all the time when I would right. show up out of the field and getting shot at with the GIs. They, they couldn't believe that um, anybody that didn't have to be there would, would, would be, be there. there. I totally got that concept. <laughs> and I think uh, part of the... Uh, and I know so many photographers who did it and photographers who didn't make it back, certainly. Um, in fact, in my own case, I, I, I was 24 when I got there and I, I had a lot of combat experience in that first year. And um, in fact, it was the pictures I took in 1971 uh, that won me the Pulitzer Prize in 1972. And there were like 12, 11 or 12 pictures in the, in the portfolio. One of them was the Ali Frazier fight knockdown picture. Nobody had it like that. And uh, it was a classic shot. But um, I never thought I would see my 25th birthday. I mean, there were so many occasions that I had close calls. And um, uh, and I never, uh, never intimated that I wasn't frightened on occasion. But the, 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 the question that... It, how do you deal with it? And it's overcoming your own anxiety and fear to do what you want to do. And that's not just to be a combat photographer, really that's in so many different things that we do, like uh, getting in front right. of an audience and giving a talk. I mean, I'm sure you've done it. And it's, if somebody said that that, that scares people more than anything. Uh, uh, it scares when, me more than anything. No, I, but I understand it. I get it. But I, I haven't been in Vietnam. Like the one of the one of the reasons I ask speaking. you the question is because, like you said earlier, I you know I look back and sometimes it's and maybe you said this kind of in jest and I'll, I'll butcher exactly how you said it, but you essentially were saying, like I can't even believe you know some of the things that I've gone through or some of the things that happened to me. It no, that seems wasn't like it was yes, that was a serious statement. Well, and, and, and so what, what it made me think of with Vietnam in particular is that I, I feel as though, like through my lifetime, I remember the first half of my life. I'm 46. I was born in 75. The first uh -huh. half of my life, Vietnam was a much bigger deal. Lots you of movies born, about uh, Vietnam. Lots of discussion about the, Vietnam. You were born during the Ford presidency. <laughs> right. I was. Right. A Gerald Ford and, baby. And, I, yes, exactly. And so, but what I, what I was thinking about is that it seems as though society or our culture does the same thing that you were talking about. Like it's almost hard for society or culture to even think about or talk about Vietnam in the ways that we used to. It's almost like, and I don't want to say it's not, it's, it's like it didn't happen, but the impact of it has certainly shifted and changed over the years. And part of that's the passing of time. Sure. But I feel like that makes what you went through and what people like you 
do when you are in those positions, especially when you don't have to be, it makes it that much more important, doesn't it? Because you were there and you Uh, captured what was happening. Yeah, because uh, I recently um, had my archive acquired for the center uh, by the Center for Creative Photography in in Arizona, uh, University of Arizona in Tucson. And it's the home of the Ansel Adams archive and Edward Weston and Richard Abaddon and Gary Winogrand and on and on. Um, And they, but one of the reasons they were attracted to my archive, you know, certainly it's about photography because that's my vehicle, but it really was also about history. And just what you're saying, I mean, we have like, I'm a, like a direct report from the action. I, I, I come in with uh, eyewitness experience and the pictures to prove it kind of thing. But I find that the value of my pictures certainly is in the, the photographs, but but the, but it's really, what are they? This is not just pictures of Hollywood. These are not pictures of right. uh, like Ansel's rivers, rocks and mountains, which are essential right. and important. I mean, we all had a different, you know, means of, uh, of, of course. approaching our subjects. My subject has been history. Um, I've always been in it for the history. That it, it, that was the real value of the archive. Plus, I was working at a really high level and continue to do so in my career, covering big stories. You know, whether it's Vietnam or Sadat going to uh, Israel or Jonestown. Uh, 13 presidents, uh, on and on and on. And and so because I was working for UPI and Time and Life and Newsweek, uh, I would have like tremendous access to these people who were making the, the news. And so that that's what it's about. But you're right about Vietnam. I mean, with, without the, the photographs, uh, you're really, there's a big gaping hole in the history. So you have to believe what people said or wrote about it. If you're looking at the Peloponnesian Wars, I mean, you, right. you, you take it from text <clears throat> and all that, but those are all people who did have a dog in the hunt. Like the winners usually tell the tales, right? The winners and tell the story. That's right. And so, but now what, what, ever since the first war photography, which was in the Crimean War, which is right at the beginning of photography that wasn't like action shots, but uh, the Civil War, particularly. The Civil War is where we really saw dead people on the battlefield, photographs by Alexander Gardner at Antietam, for instance. And and I've done lectures about this, and I'm fascinated with it because that was the point where you really started to, to see what really was going on. And that was the point with, um, with portraiture, for instance. Like the, uh, I would ask you this question. Do you know who the first president during office or, or out of office, uh, who was the first one photographed? It's a, it's oh, a good question. And I uh, can't. See, in my mind, I'm going back Lincoln. 100. I'm going back 150 years in my mind. Well, you've got to figure photography basically starts in 1838. So it was after that. I'll tell you when it was. Almost 200, almost 200 years. 1843 was the, uh, yeah. 
Who was it? John Quincy Adams. Oh, I wouldn't have got there. John Quincy Adams as a who after the presidency, obviously his presidency predated photography, but um, he was a congressman. He, afterwards, he ran for Congress, and it was a photograph made sitting in his chair up uh, at the Capitol in uh, 1843. So he was the first guy photographed. So he's the first president because of that picture who we really know what they look you know like. What look like. Yeah. There's all these other, I mean, you think of George Washington, the $1 bill, and, and right. these are all idealized portraits. In fact, uh, right. there's a great story about an art critic back in the, maybe it was a Peel uh, portrait of Washington. And he, this is somebody who had seen Washington in the flesh. And he said, based on that picture of George Washington, he would need ID to prove who he was if he walked into a room. <laughs> so... So now with <laughs> photography, uh, and that's not to say that photos can't be manipulated and all sure. that, but right. I mean, if it's an honest source, if you're getting it from, you know, a wire photographer or people, trusted messengers, really, uh, is what we are, um, that you could count on what you see is uh, really happened. And that's really what that person looked like. And uh well, and I feel like if, you know, as, <clears throat> as you were discussing, like your own memory starts to, I don't know, starts to get flimsy or fade. But then when you see a photograph, it takes you right back, doesn't it? And I feel like it does that for society too, like culture's memory or society's memory regarding Vietnam, to use that as an again example, starts to fade as time goes by. But then you see some of those images and you're right back there and, or it provides a perspective for someone like myself that was born essentially after the fact. Right. right? And, and to make your point for you, uh, I did an interview with uh, president Ford in 1995. I was working on a big mm. project and um, I mean, I don't normally interview people, uh, but um, I knew him of course really well, having had been his uh, white house photographer and all that, but we sat down in um, a conference room in his office in Rancho Mirage. His mind was very good. Actually, right up until the end, uh, he, he, you know, it wasn't like Reagan who kind of faded out. Uh, but, mm -hmm. but, yeah. but I brought in uh, a stack of photos divided into 10 subjects I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about, uh, uh, wanted to talk about Richard Nixon the pardon, I want to talk about yeah. the end of the Vietnam War, Mrs. Ford's uh, illness. Uh, and oh and so we started going through the pictures and it made such a huge difference for him. I mean, yes, he'd lived those things. Right. But when all of a sudden he was looking and, and being brought back into the room, essentially, uh, by right. the photos. And it, it made for a really good interview and, and because it was a very natural conversation um, and plus, the one thing a lot of people uh, forget is that I was always the other person in the room. So when you see mm. my photographs from the Gerald Ford presidency, I was in on everything. And so if they talk about this great moment where George Herbert Walker Bush and President Ford are talking and he offers him the CIA director's job, uh, 
there was Bush, Ford, and Kennerly, always, <laughs> or whomever. <laughs> it's it's mind blowing, though. No, but it's okay. You know, and, and I mean, I don't want to be recognized as being there because if you see the photos, the photos didn't take themselves, obviously. <laughs> and so. But I mean, for you personally, that's mind blowing, like to, to yeah. just to state it that way and to really think about the reality of that is incredible to me. Yeah, I'm thinking that about that as a book title. The other book I'm going to do will be the sort of the big photo book, <laughs> you know, 60 years by the time I get it around to it. Uh, 60 years of pictures. Uh, I'm still wrestling with. How do you do that? If you think about 60 years and two pictures a year, that's 120 photos, which is, there's a book right there. Right. And, you know, obviously, I've taken, in many more cases, than more than two good pictures on one day of something, <laughs> whatever it was. Right. Of so course. That, oh, it's hard. It's hard. It's like, all right, what is that book going to be? A lot of people say, well, you should do it as several books. And like Harry Benson is a good example of I mean, he did a Beatles book, I mean, but he has the kind of archive where you could kind of split stuff off like that. And I don't really, I would like one book that summarizes my career, not just a catalog of my career, but like, what does it all mean? And like, I'm kind of wrestling uh, with that question right now. Like uh, my wife, Rebecca, who's a writer, a professional writer, is, uh, is always pushing me to think, about what it is I'm doing, what did I do, why did I do it? Yeah. Um, and these are hard questions for me because I, I've, I've lived really in an assignment-driven career. When I'm working for UPI, they say, okay, go cover this, go cover that. Um, I'm not a photo SAS per se, even though you could make the case that the, the two and a half years of the Ford administration was a giant photo essay because I was in on everything. Right. Um, uh, I did a book called Photo Du Jour, which is a, a picture a day in the year 2000, uh, every day shooting a couple of rolls of film. Uh, it was with a, uh, apologies to Canon who sponsors me. Uh, it was a, uh, uh, Mamiya Seven, but I want and I shot Canon's the day job stuff. There was the campaigns mm -hmm. and everything, but I had this other point of view with a uh, uh, the Mamiya, which is like a Leica on steroids with a forty-three millimeter lens, which is equivalent to about a twenty. So it was kind of a left brain, right brain exercise. It was really fun. It really challenged me as a photographer. And uh, but that one, I guess you could say, was kind of a photo essay, but not really. Uh, it was a picture. Looking of back, though, retrospectively, considering all of that, and <laughs> and then thinking again about what you were a part of or what you were witness to at such a young, early age, relatively, like you're 24, and you're and you're going to Vietnam. How did that and what happened there shape you? and maybe even prepare you retrospectively again, because you can look back now, how did that shape you and prepare you for all the things that came after? Well, there were things that even came before that. I, in 1968, I was at the um, Ambassador Hotel when Robert Kennedy was you shot. You were there. I, I was 21 years old. And uh, when I was- You were there working, that day. 
Yeah, I was there that night, and uh, but I, I, I wasn't in the room. Bill Epridge was in the room. Ron Bennett was in the room. Um, and But I got him the last picture where he gives the V sign when he wins right. the California primary. I mean, it's conceivable he could have gone on to win the presidency. That's sure. no question about it. Absolutely. Um, and of course, history has always changed uh, with an event like that, of course. And um, uh, But I had also covered, when I started with uh, UPI in LA, uh, I covered this guy getting gunned down by the cops, uh, like having him like crawling on the ground. He the last live thing he saw was me and I watched him die. And so I had a uh, an ability to kind of take that stuff in stride. I mean, it was, it was, you don't ever get used to that, certainly. But sure. um, so by the time I was 24, in a way, I was kind of like, um, relatively mature, I'd like to think, but it, it did change me to the degree that uh, I spent two years covering that war. I was in Cambodia. I was in the India-Pakistan war. Uh, some of those pictures were in my, uh, the Pulitzer work. Um, and then winning a Pulitzer Prize at 25, I mean, that was a shocking event for me. Um, I didn't know I'd been entered. And you didn't ask me this question, but it's part of what has made me who yeah, I am like for, for better or worse, certainly. But uh, um, to deal with that as a, a young guy, really just getting going in my career. So at that point, I'd, I'd only been out of high school like 10 years. And um, uh, I, I had to think what that all meant. And what right. it meant was... And I could actually answer that one because the day after I won, Dirk Halstead, who at this point now is working for Time Magazine and had been with UPI, and he'd come into Saigon and he wanted to see where the action was. <laughs> and so, and so there, were, there was a, um, uh, a lot of fighting. It was about 25 or 30 miles outside of Saigon, which is close. You know, it'd be like going from where I am now in LA. Uh, you know, to like Palm Springs or not even that far. Not and even so, that far. Uh, um, um, so we got in the car. We get, get did those days you could just hire a car and a driver to kind of drive you up the road. And we're going to a place called Anlock, and we get ambushed with a group of South Vietnamese Airborne Rangers uh, who are trying to break into Anlock and get pinned down. It was the worst firefight I'd ever been in, which is saying something. And, and it was like, I thought, this is so stupid. I mean, here I am. I just won the pill surprise yesterday. And, and I'm out there getting shot at big time and, and uh, thinking I'm not going to make it out of here. And, and the, the overriding thought really was that my friends would think I was a total idiot. I said, can't you just take a day off and celebrate? But no, Kennerly has to go out and get himself killed. <laughs> I mean, it would have been <laughs> one of those great, unfortunate, ironic stories. Oh, man. But I made it through. I made it. And, uh, uh, it, it but that's what I concluded. It wasn't like, definitely, I wasn't looking for that. But uh, that kind of action necessarily. But the um, what it meant to me was I had a, 
keep on going. I was like, yeah, it was a great thing. And it would <clears throat> open doors that led to me uh, being hired by Life magazine. Isn't there some sort of a... <clears throat> so to, to, to kind of jump off of that a little bit, isn't there a, some sort of like maybe a psychological switching of gears, you know, considering whether they're assignments or whether they're circumstances or situations that you find yourself in, you're in a firefight, right? On, on one hand. And then maybe six months later, you're, you're at the edge of a ring, you know, getting an amazing shot because you're, you're the one in that position to get it and you're ready for it. Um, and then maybe, I don't know, six months later, you're in the Oval Office or whatever it is. But what sort of, those are very wildly different circumstances. Well, no, and that, uh, that's a really good question, but you're talking about months like in between. That's not how it works. In fact, one of my boys, uh, uh, we went to Jordan and I took a, 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 the youngest one, James, who uh, is this fall starting a PhD program at the University of Chicago in uh, Chinese literature. Uh, but I, I took him with me to um, Jordan to photograph the king. And, um, but we, uh, <laughs> but I, before that, we went to a refugee camp on the Syrian border, one of the huge refugee camps. And uh, I took him and I took Nick and uh, my, uh, one of my other boys. And there we are out with all these, these people who can't leave the camp and they've escaped the fighting in Syria. And the uh, Syria's just on the other side of the border. Right. This was the, a big camp. There were like 100,000 people in this camp, maybe more actually. And we spent the day and, and uh, my son uh, Nick uh, played violin uh, and, 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 uh, with all these kids and gave them a performance. He's a professional violin player. Uh, James is a really good photographer. He taught kids how to take pictures. Hmm. And then that evening we went to the palace to see the king. So that telescopes exactly what you're saying. You go from the refugee camp to a, like not only just a, like a higher end world, but a royal world. Yeah. On one day, that yeah. is how I how it works for me. That that is uh, the being able to change gears is an essential part of of, of my life. And being with a, a soldiers in in the field under fire, to being with the general later who's not under fire. Uh, right. And and going back and forth uh, uh, from um, uh, the, from the soldiers to the higher ups to uh, into the White House to um, the guy cleaning the street to uh, all that stuff. It, it for some reason I, I I have been able to do it without ever grinding the gears. I, I don't know why. Um, it's also maybe part of the reason why uh, I fortunately escaped the post-traumatic stress uh, problem. Uh, well, I wanted I, to ask about that too, right? Yeah. Like, is that, has that, ha that hasn't been much of a factor for you or it, do you it was think a, it's, it's a zero factor, uh, not even not much of a factor. I, I never had one nightmare about Vietnam or combat of any kind. 
uh, I've had weird dreams, you know, but nothing <laughs> where I know, how, like, and I'm sympathetic to, uh, you know, any, anybody, including my fellow uh, photographers, colleagues who have been through really rough stuff and, and, and it's, mm. it's had a, a permanent effect on them. So it's not just mm. soldiers that go through that. I mean, we, uh, I mean, that's a fairly not uncommon, but maybe part of it was the fact that uh, that I, I didn't have to be there and I could leave at any minute. Um, yeah, you had that maybe. I wasn't yeah. killing people, uh, sure. uh, although they were trying to kill me, but I never took it personally, um, uh, which you could. I mean, you could do that, I guess, but it didn't make sense to me. But and I, and I know people who fought their way through that. And I know, like, particularly the Vietnam era, guys my age, uh, particularly, um, that have lived with it. And, and uh, there were a lot of people who never had treatment. And even flash forward to Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, uh, some of whom had like two or three tours of, uh, of heavy combat activity and just being in a war zone is uh, anxiety producing. Uh, uh, look at the number of suicides uh, among veterans. I mean, it's a kind of a scandal, yeah. really. So and, I feel like you have this composition almost that for whatever reason has allowed you to, to, to not suffer from some of those huge drawbacks. I wonder if as you, again, retrospectively, you, you're at a point now where you can look back on this amazing career. What what stands out to you if you if you think of the word gratitude? What are you what are you most grateful for as you as you look back? And what are you or most thankful for as you look back on such a, an amazing career? Well, I mean, the fact I've been able to do it, the people would send me out to do it. Uh, <clears throat> I was giving a workshop for wounded warriors down at Camp Pendleton. Um, uh, and I found that teaching photography, or not teaching, but uh, helping people learn how to take pictures, yeah. not only among like people who have like uh, affected adversely by war, yeah. kids, uh, uh, particularly underprivileged kids, uh, it is, teaching them a form of expression that they can they yeah. can do and not i mean everybody can take a picture but trying to show that you could get into a deeper dive into what you're looking right. at and maybe reflect your own problems and all that and, yes. and thereby helping ease some of your own uh, stress and, and uh, to be and, and so i but i was asked the question by one of the one of the participants of the workshop and I gave a little talk and I kind of an overview career, like kind of Kennerly's magical mystery tour of my life. And um, he said, could anybody do that today? And that was a great question. Nobody had asked me that. And I hadn't thought about it really, but if you think about the expense of being sent around the world, like I was in the heyday of like magazine, particularly, uh, uh, UPI, but Time and then Newsweek and like always yeah. going on political stuff, like uh, going from Washington, D.C. to Cairo like three times in a, <laughs> a month to, to 
go with Sadat to Israel to uh, photograph him in front of the pyramids for the man of the year thing. But and, and jumping on the Concorde and flying to London mm. to go uh, to on an uh, Egyptian air flight to Cairo so you could get there faster. Mm -hmm. Like, if you probably add it up, and I've never been able to do it, although I still have a lot of old expense accounts, but in some ways those are fiction. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> might be inflating the issue a little. Uh, but a little. the uh, uh, if you added it up about what they paid me to do it and what it cost, uh, the expenses of, of all that, yeah, like it'd be millions of dollars. And sure. people now are just not spending that kind of money to send somebody around to cover stories because they get right. they pick up photos locally, like example when um uh Momar Gaddafi was killed. There were people yeah. right there with iPhones. And so there's no way to like cover spot news unless you you know completely like completely different. Your, yeah, completely it's different, different. But it's like uh, the, you don't have budgets like Newsweek uh, was sent to out of business on a print issue or print the, uh, once a week. I mean, time is still hanging in. Um, none of them are going to do that. So the answer is no. You can't. If if, it, if I came along right now, with, uh, I would never be doing this kind of stuff. And so, in a way, uh, I had a magic carpet ride. Yeah. from the 60s through now, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, I still work. And uh, um, in the at the highest level of, of news and history. And that was all because people, it goes back to your question about, am I grateful? Yeah, of course. Right. And right. I, A, I didn't get bumped off, didn't get right. <laughs> wounded even, other than my ego occasionally. But, uh, um, and I think, um, uh, yeah, I'm damn grateful for it. And the people would believe enough in me, but I, I, I mean, I work so hard at it. I'm very competitive. Uh, and, you know, we talk about America being a place where if you work hard enough, you can succeed. I don't yeah. necessarily believe that. I think a lot of people work really hard and are frustrated by yeah. uh, a defeat and, and, all that, but it's true to the degree in my case where, you know, it, it, I had the opportunities to do it. I took advantage of it. Um, a lot of it stems from being the son of a traveling salesman and learning mm -hmm. how to sell people things they probably didn't want uh, the <laughs> way my dad could do it. And, uh, yeah. and that what I'm selling really is, you on the idea of letting me into your life to so I could take pictures. That's not that easy. And there has right. to be a trust factor and all that. So there are so many elements that go into what I've done and how I do it. And I could write about it to some degree, but I don't know that anybody could necessarily, I don't think I could teach it. I can't teach somebody to be me, certainly. Of course. But I could give you advice, but uh, you, everybody has their own way of doing stuff. Well, then you've written lots of books, I know. And one, okay, so this is one thing I wanted to make sure I asked you about because it stuck out to me um, because of my own uh, personal tastes. Um, you wrote uh, a book about Seinfeld, uh, the show, the, the, the final days of the show. Right. Can you, can you talk to me a little bit about that? That's my all-time favorite show 
Um, I watched it in real time as it was airing in the nineties, all throughout the nineties. Right. Um, and how and why, uh, with that book for you? Well, first of all, it started as a new, it was a Newsweek assignment. Okay. And so, but here's where I had, this is where the selling thing came in because Mm. they didn't want the, the, you remember the final episode, which wasn't that great, but because they tried it. It wasn't. Uh, Photographically, it was good because they had all, they brought all those. Because everybody was there. (laughs) Yeah. So there was this courtroom scene, you know, where they're all yes. sitting in the courtroom. But they basically, the 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 premise of that last show is that they're getting called on their, you know, all it was like the Good Samaritan law, the right? Yeah, yeah. And so they're going to court for like screwing right. over all these people over, right. which is essentially what it was about. Right, <laughs> and, right, right. You know, it was about nothing except for that, you know. And, <laughs> uh, uh, but the. Uh, uh, so it was a big secret, you know, that they didn't want anybody to know, like how, what, what the, the 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 show was about. You know, this yeah. is supposed to be a big surprise, right? And, and I said, look, um, and I got into a conversation with Larry David about that because, backing up a little bit, I sent a note to Jerry Seinfeld through his agent. And I said, Newsweek would like me to photograph this. Normally I don't do Hollywood stuff, but your show is American cultural history. And I would like to do you photograph your show the same way I would, uh, I would work in the white house, like behind the scenes as history is being made. And your last show is really important to a lot of people, certainly all of you. And you know, Honestly, I went right for his ego. I said, okay, this is me, the Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, wanting to come in because you guys are so important. And I wrote a hell of a good letter there, and he bought it. And so, (laughs) I mean, it was going to be Newsweek. And the other part is they weren't going to own my pictures. Normally, if you you get hired by them to shoot something, you're giving up rights and all that. Right. I owned it. And, and, but, and I was good and I did it in black and white. And, and so, so the, the one hitch came when Larry David, uh, who knew nothing about this and he had co-written the last episode and all that. Um, I mean, Larry David's my age. And, uh, but when I was going into the soundstage over at uh, studio city, for the uh, the first day of shooting of the final episode, he and I both kind of got locked out, and, and like uh, because they closed the doors at a certain time, and and, and we both thank God he was out, or I, I probably would have gotten in for that first. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's the right guy to get locked but, out with. But he, but he, he's like, who are you? You know, and uh, I'm I'm explained. He said, well, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm here to shoot the. No, okay, you know, this can't work out. And he said, This is the whole thing, you know, is a secret. And, and I looked at him, I said, Larry, he said, When I was in the White House, I knew where all the nukes were. And if I could keep those kind of secrets, I'm sure as hell not going to say anything about Seinfeld's last episode. 
So how did he, he take thought, that? How did he, he take it was that? Funny. No, no, no. <laughs> it's like it wasn't his call anyway. Sorry, Larry. <laughs> but um, uh, but but he came around, and then he goes and talks to Jerry, and Jerry says, "No, no, I want him to be here." You know, right. Larry, Larry David hadn't been on the show for what a couple of years. You probably know better yeah. than I do. Anyway, yeah. so. <clears throat> Oh my it goodness. was a fascinating experience. Uh, the most intriguing character for me was uh, Michael Richards playing yeah. Kramer. And he is nothing at all like uh, in real life as that Kramer character. I mean, he's a, yeah. a, a terrific actor. <clears throat> but he he was always wary of the camera. People that are wary, that they, they're, they're aloof, are much more interesting to me than, hey, come over, take my picture, and all that. Now, Jerry Seinfeld is Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, he was totally cool. He's the centerpiece of the show. He is playing himself. Uh, right. Everybody else is acting, you know, uh, uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Jason uh, Alexander, whom I had met and photographed when I did a Time cover. Uh, it was a Neil Simon cover sure. for, uh, that he was in uh, uh, Broadway Bound. Mm -hmm. And Neil... Or Neil uh, uh, Jason was one of the actors, and so I had met him, but I didn't know the other people. But I, I fit right in. And the secret of doing this kind of stuff is uh, really being discreet in the background and all that. And um, I had one incident where before every show, they get together, they have this kind of a group hug, and they uh, like to get psyched up to go out uh, when they do the stage part of, you know, what, and you could hear them backstage, but I, you wouldn't know what they were doing. And I told Jerry, like, the, um, Michael saw me and they're like hugging and I'm back at the corner. I knew this is a private moment that had never been photographed. And I, I said, of course I got to shoot it. Right. And I told, I said, he said, Oh, I don't know. This is pretty private. And I said, look, I'll shoot it. And if you don't want to, it to be used fine I'll, uh, I'll i'll give you the negatives and um but if i don't shoot it you're not going to have it and you're going to want it at some point and uh i said okay go ahead and do it so i'm, I'm back in the corner and michael richard sees me and, and he's going like hey you know and uh like it's almost like kramer doing that and, and Jerry says, don't worry about it. You know, he kind of grabs him, but they do their <laughs> hug and they do their thing. And it, it was a good photo and it's in the book. And so uh, oh. and the book came out of that. I mean, it wasn't done for a book, but I talked them into doing the book. And they all, we were all participants in the book. And they, we went through photos and they, uh, they commented about all those pictures and so the commentary really was what you were talking about earlier, about right. being brought back to the moment, even though the, the, the moments weren't that far away because we did it pretty quickly after that. But it was great commentary. And, uh, amazing, and yeah. I thought it, it was a good depiction of the last days. Now, the other thing that, that I wanted to ask you about, too, was that you're a, you talked about Canon earlier you're a, a founding member of the Explorers of Light. I'm an early member. I don't know if I was one of the first ones, but definitely it's been over 25 years now. And um, <clears throat> I, I switched from Nikon to Canon in 1995. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. and really, Dirk Halstead had been after me forever. He was using Canons from the get-go. I'd always had Nikons, but when Autofocus came out, mm. that was when, like, I, I, it was apparent that Canon had a better product there for the autofocus. And I just thought, okay, I'll try it. And I had had a conversation with Newsweek. Well, Newsweek hired me to cover the 96 campaign and it was a big deal that I was going to do it. And then, um, but I hadn't been shooting a lot and I had the Nikons. I thought it would, was time to upgrade my Nikons and Nikon wouldn't give me the time of day. And so uh, Dirk hooked me up with Canon and they essentially, you know, rolled uh, back the truck up with all this new Canon gear to my house. And, uh, and all of a sudden <laughs> I'm a Canon user and they had a rep come and show me how to use it. And yeah. oh my God, I mean, I loved the gear. And so it started with, it was still film obviously at that point. And then the evolution through into digital and all that. But yeah, I mean, the Explorers of Light program, it's just a, this great group of people. Halstead was one of the first ones and uh, a lot of my contemporaries. And essentially, it's not a matter of money. Um, I would never like endorse something that I didn't use that I, I didn't feel was the best product. Mm. And that by way of dumping on all the cameras, a lot of good stuff out there. But these are my cameras of choice. I get paid more money in one day on a corporate job than I would in three years of being a Canon Explorer of Light. And so of course. it's not about the money. It's about being comfortable that I have the best gear. And so now uh, 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 I'm using the R5 mirrorless cameras with mm-hmm. their lenses. Um, astonishing gear. That's all I can say. It's... Um, but it still boils down to the person behind the camera. I play golf. If I have really expensive golf clubs, I'm still a crappy golfer. You know, so <laughs> I don't, and I know how these companies sell these duffers on this thing. I get it. But Canon, <laughs> I think, will will enhance your ability to take better pictures. But you still have to have you know some ability to do it. If you're sure. a good photographer or want to be a good photographer, I, I couldn't recommend anything more highly than. Canon cameras and uh, uh, the proof is in the pudding, uh, but I still do use the iPhone. Yeah, uh, did yeah, a, a book on iPhone photography, and Canon's never given me a hard time about that. And uh, um, so, no conflict on that one. Let me ask you one last question. I've thought about this one too. All things considered, you, I, because I, I, with some with someone like you, with you in particular, there's so much that I could, I'm, we could just dive into like decade and then even narrow it down to years. But what I would like to know is that when a hundred years from now, when people look back on your life as a whole, what else, what else are they going to be able to see and read about that hasn't happened yet? What's next? Well, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, the idea of putting it all together in one book is very appealing to me. But I think what hope people will see from my work is that I delivered the truth that what you're looking at happened. It's real. It's not manipulated. Um, 
you know, nowadays <clears throat> when we have these vehicles like Twitter, which is really an evil thing because it makes people like me who shouldn't be doing it say things about people that I shouldn't say, <laughs> that I want to say. It's so, right. but I, I, I think it. in terms of, but when you boil it down to uh, like what's a career about it, and I'm kind of thinking about like what does it all mean? I'm not sure I'm the person to actually tell you what that is. I think other people should do it when they look at make their own assessment of the work <clears throat> but it really is about uh, delivering reality and giving you a better perspective on the things that happened that i saw directly because my career's been uh, in, in large part about going to places that people didn't want to go to take pictures of things that they right. didn't want to see right. but it's important that you see them and so this is kind oh. of what we do as photographers, not just me. I mean, thank God for the photographers. They're so, they, they are among the most important people on the planet and mm. telling you what's really going on. Wow. I, I think that was really well said. Thank you for that. And, and thank you for your time too. Oh, it's great. I'm really glad I didn't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> It was a yeah, close call. We, it was a close we made call. it happen. It wasn't so. your fault. It was like, <laughs> anyway, I mean, uh, for all the slowness, uh, and like next week, and I don't know when it's going to run, but I, I'm going to go back to Washington, D.C. to photograph my uh, good friend, uh, uh, Liz Cheney, who's oh, I've yes. noticed that she was eight years old, uh, oh. uh, essentially become Joan of Arc uh, on the Republican yeah. Uh, yeah. stake. And um uh, you know, having worked at the Ford White House, I got to know her dad really well, and I've just known her over the years. And and uh, uh, she's one of the great, honest politicians, and it seems to be a, a, a disappearing breed. And but thank God for people like her because uh, oh boy, truth yeah. tellers uh, that's what photographers are they're mm -hmm. truth tellers through their lenses, and uh, uh. Fortunately, there are a lot, a lot of people like Liz Cheney still out there. I'm very optimistic ultimately about all how things go, but it, it's a it's a rough ride. Well, I I will take you know what I I will take that as a positive note to end on, and I thank you for your time, and I wish thank you the you. best, and uh, I'll keep my eyes open for more David Hume Kennerly images coming down the pike. You can go. I'm, I have an Instagram feed, uh, David Hume Kennerly uh, on Instagram, and uh, Twitter is just Kennerly, but don't look at it. I, I'm very tired. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say Thank I was so a big Trump fan, for instance. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll say, but, but the words will play that out. So. Oh, that's right. perfect. Thanks a lot. See you. All right. Have a good day. Bye bye.